0: As our children are making their way to their classes, if you have your Bible, and I hope that you do, please turn in it to Acts chapter 8. we we'll We're continue our study through the book of Acts, and this morning we will be in chapter 8, beginning in verse 4, and following. In the book of Acts, as well as today, God is aiming his church, positioning his church just so, so that it is aiming at his target, which is the nation's. God intends to use his church as a launch pad. A launch pad from which he will launch the gospel from here out there. And so as those whom he is positioning, as those whom he is aiming and repositioning just so, we need missional orientation. We need to be oriented by our God in such a way that we are that launch pad from which he will launch the gospel and advance the gospel where he intends to send it. And I think that's what's happening here in our passage this morning. That's what's happening for this early church in this passage. They're being oriented missionally. God is positioning this Jerusalem church to be his launch pad from which he will launch the gospel beyond Jerusalem. And for Theophilus, to whom Luke, we know, is writing this book of Acts, and to the church of Theophilus's day, God is positioning that church through the writing of this book in such a way that Theophilus's church and the church of his day would be a faithful and effective launch pad from which to launch the gospel out of their Jerusalem. And we're no different today in 2022. God is positioning our church to be a launch pad from which He intends to launch His gospel and advance His gospel from our Jerusalem to the Samaria beyond these walls. And that's what we see happening in this passage. In this morning's passage, we find three missional orientations, three adjustments to our aim, three repositionings to ensure that we will be that launch pad from which the Lord will launch the gospel from in here to out there. And so let's read Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 4, and we will read through verse 25. This is God's word. Now, those who were scattered, this is the church that was scattered because Stephen was stoned to death in the last passage that we read. And great persecution broke out and persecution broke out and scattered the church. So those who were scattered went about preaching the word. And Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed, so there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. villages of the samaritans let's pray our great god and father we thank you so much for this book and we thank you for this particular passage that you've recorded on the pages of your word and we ask that you would attend to the reading of your word with your holy spirit present in this room present in our spirits To give us not just an understanding of this passage, but complete application of it to our very lives. And we ask that by applying it to our lives, Lord, you might make us look a bit more like Jesus so that you may be glorified in us and through us even more as a church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as you can see, there's a lot going on in this passage this morning. There's three stories in one, so we get our money's worth this morning. Three stories all kind of intertwined into into one. And, And it's through these three stories that we can draw out these three missional orientations that I believe we're meant to walk away with from this passage To orient us to be the launch pad from which God intends to get the gospel out from just these walls to the community and to the ends of the earth. So, what are those three stories that are intertwined all throughout this passage? First, we see that there is the advance of the gospel in Samaria, and then we see that there is this apostolic visit from Jerusalem. And then finally, we have the admonishment and exposure of this guy named Simon. So I want to look at each of those stories, see how they're intertwined, and then seek to draw out those missional orientations that we need. First, the advance of the gospel in Samaria. So here we are in the middle of the story. Stephen has been stoned to death, that faithful Deacon, that faithful servant in the Jerusalem church, he has been stoned to death for preaching the gospel on the streets of Jerusalem. And as a result, we're told in verse 1 of chapter 8 that a great, on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church. We don't know much about what made it great. We don't know much about what happened in that great persecution, but it must have been fierce and it must have been very violent because it caused the church to be scattered abroad throughout all Judea and Samaria, we're told. And so as they are scattered, that's not the end of it. They're, they're pursued. They're pursued by the likes of Saul and, and his pharisaical brothers, who were told were ravaging the church and throwing Christians into jail as he found them. And so They were scattered all throughout this region. What do they do? Verse 4 of our passage, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. And verse 5, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. Philip, we know, is one of the seven that that Jerusalem church chose back in chapter 6 to be one of the seven to serve tables there in that church. He's a deacon, but as we see this week and in next week's passage, he's also an evangelist. And so he's scattered and he ends up in Samaria and he proclaims Christ in that city and to that people. He proclaims to them the gospel. And verse 7 and 8 tell us, kind of give us a picture of the, the fruit of that ministry. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. And then if you look down at verse 12, Luke tells us that in spite of Simon's amazing magic show, the people believed Philip when he preached to them good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Christ, and they were baptized, both men and women. This is nothing less than revival breaking out in Samaria. The gospel of Jesus Christ takes this city by storm. And church, don't we want that for our city? Don't we want that for our community? For the gospel to take this community by storm? We want that to happen. We pray for that to happen. Of course, revival is up to the Lord. The the Spirit will blow wherever the Spirit will blow. We can't put revival in a box and just pull it out wherever we want it to be. But I think we can learn an important lesson here that will help to draw out and orient us for mission. So the first missional orientation here is that God often requires of his people sacrifice and sometimes suffering in order to bring revival to Samaria. God often requires his church, his people, to to endure suffering and to, to offer sacrifice of themselves in order for the gospel to advance beyond their Jerusalem. Think about what it took for God to get the gospel to Samaria. It took the stoning of Stephen. It took this great persecution to break out. It took the church to be scattered and as they were scattered, ravaged by Saul and thrown into jail wherever they went throughout Judea and Samaria. And yet this was the means that God chose to use to bring the gospel to Samaria. And this is a theme that we've seen before in the book of Acts, and we will continue to see it over and over again, that God sometimes requires his people to experience suffering and sacrifice in order for God to get the gospel where he intends it to go. The question for us then is, what is it going to take for us? to be obedient, to take the gospel to our neighbors, co-workers, and friends in our community. What sacrifice might God require of you and I for us to be launched into gospel mission in our neighborhoods, workplaces, and community? Maybe it's a sacrifice of time. Maybe it's a sacrifice of comfort. Maybe it's a sacrifice of some leisure time. Maybe it's just simply a sacrifice of seeing that our lives ought not to be spent solely on our plans, our dreams, and our desires, but also invested in the lives and eternal concerns of those that God puts in our path. What if, for example, for every conversation that we have in our homes and in our lives about a vacation that we plan to take, we also have a conversation about how to reach our neighbors. What if every time we have an inclination to spend time and resources on ourselves, we consider how God wants us to spend time and resources reaching those that he's put within our spheres of influence. Maybe that's part of the sacrifice. To the young people who are here, could it be that the Lord is calling you to leave the prospect of a comfortable life, to leave the prospect of a nice salary and a nice home and a nice job and a nice car, to perhaps sacrifice that in order to be launched in his global mission to reach an unreached people group on the other side of the world. That's quite a sacrifice. But it is a sacrifice worth making, young person, for this great God that we serve. Or maybe like the church in Jerusalem, it's a matter of being willing to suffer in order for the gospel to advance. And sometimes, I would say usually, we're not even aware of how God is using or will use our suffering for his glory. I don't think this scattered church here in Acts had any clue that what God was doing here was fulfilling his mission. They were just suffering. They were just being persecuted. They were just running away from what was happening in Jerusalem, trying to find safety, trying to find peace. They were just suffering. As they were scattered away from Jerusalem, what did that mean? That meant they were scattered from their homes. They were scattered from their family, their extended family for sure. They were scattered from their jobs. Where? Into exile in some area. And even there, pursued by Paul, who ravaged the church and seized them and threw them in jail, they would have had no way of knowing that what God was really doing here was fulfilling his mission to take the gospel to the nations. And sometimes in order to get the gospel out of Jerusalem and into Samaria, God requires that his people sacrifice and suffer. Church, are we willing to sacrifice? Are you willing to sacrifice or even to suffer if God requires that of you in order to get the gospel beyond these walls into our Samaria? Is he worthy? Is he worthy of that sacrifice? Of course he is. Does he deserve to be worshiped by the fragrant offering of a life of sacrifice? He is without question. Do you love him enough? Do you love Jesus enough to be willing to endure that? so that he will be worshiped by those who currently worship other gods or themselves and do you care enough about your lost neighbors co-workers and friends in this community and the lost multitude beyond this community to endure mistreatment whatever sacrifice of time energy resources and even enduring suffering In order to see revival in that Samaria? What will it take, church, for us to be faithful instruments that he chooses to use as his launch pad to get the gospel where he intends to get it? Whatever that is, let's be ready to pay that price. Let's be ready and willing to endure it for God's glory. That's the first story we see here, the advance of the gospel in Samaria. And are we willing to see the gospel advanced in our scenario? The second story that we see here in this passage is this apostolic visit from Jerusalem. Peter and John are sent there. We find that embedded into the middle of this passage in verses 14 through 17. Now, this embedded story about the apostles' visit presents us with a bit of a dilemma, a bit of a theological puzzle, if you will. And so I want to deal with that puzzle and then seek to, again, draw out the missional orientation that the story holds for us. It seems to me, as I read through this passage, that something very unusual is happening here. Unusual in the sense that this does not seem to be the norm and the normal way in which someone receives the Holy Spirit. The norm for how someone receives the Holy Spirit has already been set out for us by Peter in the Pentecost sermon. He said in Acts 2, verse 38, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Paul will later write in Ephesians chapter 1, In Him, that is in Christ, you also receive. When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And so, the normative way in which someone receives the Holy Spirit. Is when an unbeliever professes faith in Jesus Christ. They, they repent of their sin and self-rule. And they profess faith in Jesus Christ. That his life, death, and resurrection is their only hope to be rescued from what they deserve because of their sin. And at that very moment of conversion, they receive the Holy Spirit. They are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit comes to live in them. That is the normative way. That is normal in Scripture according to both the teaching of the apostles and according to the practice that we see throughout the book of Acts. But I would submit to you that's not what we see here in Acts chapter 8. What we see here seems to be a two-stage process. First, the Samaritans seem to genuinely believe. They respond to the gospel. Again, verse 12, but when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. That's the gospel. Seems to be a genuine response to the gospel here, genuine faith after the preaching of the gospel. and Apparently, that's why the Jerusalem church sends Peter and John. Because they see something or they hear something. Verse 14 says, When the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God. So they noticed something. They had responded to that same gospel that they had responded to. And so they send Peter and John to observe. But these Samaritan believers don't yet have the Holy Spirit, because we're told in verses 15 and 16. Peter and John came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he, that is the Holy Spirit, had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So they had placed their faith in Jesus, which we know to be the normative way in which someone receives the Holy Spirit, but they don't yet have the Holy Spirit. Instead, they need the apostles to come, lay their hands on them, pray on them, And then they will receive the Holy Spirit. And that's what happens. Verse 17, then they lay their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. So if that's not the normative way, and it's not, in which someone receives the Holy Spirit, then why do we have this aberration from what is normal? Why do we have this two-stage process, uh, this two-stage process, Uh, way in which the Samaritans received the Holy Spirit? Why this departure from the one-stage process of repent, believe, baptize, and receive the Holy Spirit all in one? Well, we need to remember where we are in this story. Up to this point, the gospel has been relegated to Jerusalem. Perhaps a few sparse places in the surrounding region of Judea, but no further further. But that was God's intention all along, to get the gospel out of Jerusalem to Judea and then Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. And Samaria was the stepping stone to the ends of the earth. If you're going to go to the ends of the earth, you got to go through Samaria. And so in one sense, we can look at Samaria here as kind of a testing ground for cross-cultural missions that are to come. Remember who the Samaritans were. By Jewish standards, they were half-breeds. Historically, Samaria was the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. And when the northern kingdom fell to the Assyrian Empire in 722 BC, the Assyrians took many of the Israelites into exile. And they later became the lost tribes of Israel. But they didn't take them all. They left many of them behind in the northern kingdom. And over time, those who were left behind intermarried with the Assyrians who moved into that area, and the race that resulted from them came to be known as the Samaritans. The Jews considered them not to be true Jews, and so not truly a part of the children of God. The Gentiles, particularly the Gentiles of the, the Romans' day, or the Romans in Jesus' Jesus's day, also considered them to be half-breeds. The Jews and the Samaritans had a very mutual disdain for one another. They, they had their own version of the Pentateuch, the first five books, and so they affirmed Moses, but they had their own version of the Pentateuch, and the rest of the Hebrew scriptures they rejected. So they rejected all the poetry, all the psalms, all the wisdom literature, and all the prophets. They had their own temple on Mount Gerizim that was their counterpart to Solomon's temple in Jerusalem. But they affirmed Moses and they affirmed Moses' messianic prophecy that we've already seen the apostles refer to a couple of times in the book of Acts where Moses promises in Deuteronomy that there is coming a prophet uh, of the likes of me who will rescue Israel. And they believe that. And they saw that messianic figure um, as, as a rescuer. They called him taheb, which literally means restorer or rescuer. And so what do we have here? We, we have a group of people whom the, the Jews generally despise. We have a group of people who had a pretty mixed up and messed up religion in their own uh, perspective and history. This really was the very first instance of cross-cultural missions. That's what this is. Today, we would call them an unreached and unengaged people group. Jesus had said that his gospel was intended for the nations, which meant it wasn't a gospel that was just for the Jews. It was for all the non-Jews everywhere as well. He had said that, but it hadn't happened yet. And now it was about to. Would it really be like Jesus said? That what happened to them, to the apostles in Jerusalem, would also happen to these Samaritans? Or would it be different? Would their experience back at Pentecost make those Palestinian Christians, like the the superior first-class Christians, And these Samaritan believers who come to faith here, though true Christians, would this make them inferior Christians or second-class Christians? In other words, what would this look like when it's all fleshed out? And again, this is setting a precedent with the church for all cross-cultural missions to follow in the book of Acts and beyond. This is the first non-Jewish culture to encounter the gospel. And in chapter 10, we're going to see the first Gentile culture encounter the gospel, and it's going to follow much the same pattern. And so what happens here will have a huge impact on how the church is to view missions to other cultures other than themselves. And so as verse 14 says, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that they had responded to the word, they had responded to the gospel, they sent Peter and John. They needed to see for themselves how this would work out. They needed The church needed eyewitnesses to see what was going to happen with this, these non-Jewish converts to Christianity. And what happened? Verse 17, they laid their hands on them. And they received the Holy Spirit. And again, it is somehow very demonstrable here, this receiving of the Holy Spirit. Because verse 18 tells us that Simon sees that. He somehow sees that they've received the Holy Spirit. There's something demonstrable about it. And so I, I, I believe that it was probably very much, if not exactly like, the experience of Pentecost with the Jerusalem church including the speaking in other languages and perhaps even the tongues of fire resting on them. In other words, what had God done? He had sovereignly ensured that Peter and John were apostolic eyewitnesses to the fact that what had happened to them at Pentecost had now also happened to these Samaritans. What they got, they were now getting And God was ensuring that the apostles were there for two reasons. First, to show them that the gospel was for all. And secondly, to show these Samaritan believers that they were not second-class Christians at all. Peter himself had said at the end of his Pentecost sermon, when the people of Jerusalem, after that sermon, you remember, they were cut to the heart. And they said, what shall we do? What, what, What must we do What does Peter say? We've already quoted part of it. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. But listen to the next verse. For the promise, what promise is that? It's the promise of forgiveness of sins and and that the Holy Spirit will be yours. For the promise is for you and for your children. Get this. And for all who are far off, everyone Whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So what is our missional orientation here? It is for us to embrace that the gospel is for all. This is not a white man's gospel. This is not an American gospel. This is not a Western gospel. This is a gospel for all. As Peter says, for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. It's a gospel for all. Do we really believe that to be true? Does our mission's budget and our mission's initiatives and our mission's engagement and participation and our heart for missions demonstrate that we really believe this to be true? If we say with our lips, that we believe that the gospel is for all, that should make a difference in how we give to missions, how we pray for missions, and how we engage in missions to the ends of the earth. Gospel is for all. That is an absolutely critical missional truth that we must orient ourselves to if we're going to be faithful in the Great Commission. The final missional orientation that we need to draw out from this passage this morning comes from the third story of our narrative. So we've looked at the story of the advance of the gospel in Samaria. We've looked at the story of the apostolic visit from Jerusalem. Now let's look at the story of the admonishment and exposure of Simon. Simon shows up as this kind of shadowy figure in verse 9. We're told that he had previously practiced magic in the city and had amazed the people of Samaria saying that he himself was somebody great. So he's got a pretty healthy ego here. This is an overinflated ego. He says that he is somebody great. That's like the textbook definition of someone with an overinflated ego. He said that he was somebody great. And he had the attention of all the people verse 10. They they all paid attention to him. And Luke notes From the least to the greatest, saying this man is the power of God that is called great. So he he didn't just appeal to the lower class of Samaria, he he appealed, appealed to the upper echelon of Samaria as well, from the least to the greatest. So much so that it seems that they thought he was a god. And Justin Martyr will write in the second century about a first century character in Samaria named Simon Magus, who was considered, by Justin Martyr's estimation, by nearly the entire population of Samaria to be a god. This was Simon, the magician, the sorcerer. And why this popularity, verse 11 explains, they paid attention to him because for a long time, He had amazed them with his magic, his sorcery. So this guy had a hold on the people of Samaria. He had them in the palm of his hand. That is until Philip came to town with the gospel. Until Philip came to town proclaiming Jesus. And then the people who had previously been absolutely amazed by this magic show, verse 12 says, they now believe Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. And so the people began to slip out of Simon's grip. And he probably didn't like that very much. And he probably thought, I need to do something about that. I need to do something to get them back in my grip. I need to come up with a better magic trick. But then we're told this in verse 13. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Here's the the theological puzzle here. If this is all we had about Simon, this might be, we might be tempted to, to think that Simon's conversion was genuine. He believed. The Greek word "pistuo" it's the same word that we find used of the Samaritan believers when they believe what Philip preaches in the gospel. He faiths. Secondly, he was baptized. So somebody looked him over and thought him to be a qualified candidate for baptism. Next, we're told that he continued with Philip. Now, while continuing with Philip might seem commendable, We're told something at the end of this verse that hints that perhaps his following of Philip was not as commendable as it seems on the the surface. Verse 13 concludes, He continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. What caught his eye were the miracles, the signs, the demons being cast out. Luke writes, with a loud shriek when they came out of him. He liked that. He saw the paralyzed and the lame getting up and walking. And he was amazed. That's what caught his eye. That's what amazed Simon. Not Jesus. Not the gospel. Not God's amazing grace that apparently had been showered on him this pagan sorcerer who now apparently had been forgiven and set free ah that didn't do it for simon it was the it was the signs and miracles that amazed him and those signs and miracles get even bigger when Peter and John come to town because now these guys, they, they walk up to these new believers and touch them and they get the Holy Spirit. And remember, he saw that they got the Holy Spirit. He, he saw how it affected them. He, he saw the, the power that was at play there and, and he wanted that. He wanted it badly. So what did he do? He reached into his pocket, pulled out his wallet and says, Name your price. I'll buy that trick because that'll get the people back with me. I want to be able to do that. And how does Peter respond to him? Peter's response here in verse 20 and following is very telling for us and helps us as we try to discern whether or not Simon's faith was genuine or false. Look at verse 20. Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God With money. May your silver perish with you. Sounds like a curse from Peter, right? In fact, J.B. Phillips' translation of this verse, verse 20, I think encapsulates the crassness that Peter intended that remark. J.B. Phillips' translation writes that Peter says to Simon here, to hell. With you and your money, Simon. I think he encapsulates what was going on here very, very well. Peter goes on to expose Simon's heart in verse 21. He says, you have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. That, that word for this matter is the word logos. Your heart is not right in this word. That that word, logos, was used back in verse 4 for what the people preached when they scattered. And we already said that referred to the gospel. Simon, you have no part in this gospel. You have no part in this logos. And why? Because your heart is not right before God. Simon, you've got a crooked heart. You're all about the signs and the miracles and all of that. Your heart's not about the Lord. You're in this for the money, the influence, the power. You're not in this for Christ and His glory. Simon, your heart is not right before God. And then Peter concludes, Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Simon, you're bitter because you don't have the power that you see that we have. You have a spiritual jealousy of our position. And as a result, Simon, you are in the bond, literally the... the, the bindings, the the bondage of iniquity, of sin. I would submit to you that that's something that an apostle does not write about a genuine believer in Christ. For the one who has genuinely repented of their sins and placed their trust in Jesus Christ, the apostles' teaching in the New Testament is that they have been set free from the law of sin and death. They have been set free From the bondage of sin. But that's not what Peter says to Simon. He says, you are still in the bonds of iniquity. And I think it's noteworthy that when Peter calls upon Simon here to repent and pray to God that he might forgive you. Simon says, no, Peter, I can't do that. You pray for me. Was Simon a genuine believer? No, I don't think he was. For the reasons I've already stated and because the church fathers record for us that this Simon Magus continued and remained to be an infinite, infamous and unrepentant sinner to his death. So then why do we have this story about him? Why do we have the story about Simon here? I think we have it to give us a warning. Three warnings I want us to look at, and one of them will be our final missional orientation. First, because I believe Simon to be a false convert, I think this is a warning about false converts. And that's a warning, first, to the false convert themselves. A warning to not play games with God. And toy with the gospel. There is apparently a believing that is not a saving belief. We're told about this in John's gospel. We're told that there were many who believed Jesus because, why? Because he performed many miracles. He did many great works. But we're told in John's gospel after the wedding of Cana that Jesus did not entrust his heart to them. Because he knew what was in their heart. They were far from him. But it's the same word, the word of belief. There's a kind of belief that is not genuine and saving. It's a faith that rests on miracles happening and blessings coming. And when they don't come, that faith is exposed for what it is. It's empty. It's like the parable of the rocky soil that has no depth and grows no roots and ultimately withers away under the heat of the sun. Friend, are you trusting in Christ? Are you clinging to Christ for reconciliation to God, for justification before Him, for forgiveness from this holy God, or are you clinging to Christ for the trinkets that you hope will come with Him? I implore you, friend, to trust in Christ truly, genuinely, savingly, no matter what trinkets may come your way or not. The prize for following Jesus is not the trinkets you get along the way. The prize for following Jesus is Jesus. You get Jesus Christ, the Lord. But there's also a warning to the church who may have false converts among them. What Peter does here in his rebuke of Simon is effectively the first excommunication of a believer from the church. We might say that Ananias and Sapphira were that first one, but that was a different story. God kind of put them to death. or didn't kind of, he did. (laughs) Here, Peter effectively excommunicates Simon from the church. He says, you have no part or lot in this Logos. For I see that you have in you the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. Is it possible in the New Testament church for there to be goats among the sheep? Yes. Sadly, horrifyingly, yes. And this passage reminds us how we are to deal with that. And we are to deal with that through church discipline. And when church discipline is, as outlined by Jesus in Matthew 18, is appropriately and effectively applied, it results in the goats, the unbelievers, being expelled from the flock. Church discipline, in the end of it, says to that individual, you have no lot or part in this logos, for you have in you the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. Second, this is another, also a warning that grace cannot be bought. This is not the primary lesson here, so I won't go much further than that except to remind us that we can't buy salvation. Salvation is free. It was costly. It cost Jesus' life, but it costs us nothing. We deserve sin. We deserve judgment because of our sin. But we are saved by grace through faith. In Jesus Christ. Jesus paid the price that we deserve to pay in full so that we don't have to. Grace cannot be bought. And then, thirdly, and here's our final missional orientation this story about Simon is also a warning to us about pointing to God, to make sure that we're pointing to Jesus and pointing to the gospel and not ourselves. What was the point of the miracles that Philip performed? The casting out of demons, the healing of paralyzed and lame. Was it not to authenticate his message and to point to Jesus? To authenticate his gospel message and to point to Jesus. I would submit to you that the signs and wonders that he performed were pedestals on which Jesus put on which Philip put Jesus. The signs and miracles were a pedestal. And what is a pedestal anyway? What's the point of a pedestal? Is it not, it, it's, the point of a pedestal is, is not for it to sit out and just look pretty by itself. Oh wow, what a, what a beautiful pedestal, right? The point of a pedestal is what? It's to, it's to display. Something valuable and beautiful on it. That's the purpose of a pedestal. So our eyes are not to be drawn to the pedestal, but to that that sits on the pedestal, is displayed as valuable and beautiful on the pedestal. But Simon's attention was drawn not to Jesus, but to the miracles, to the pedestal. We can use pedestals in our lives and in our own gospel ministry to point to Jesus as well. And it could be anything really. The songs that we sing are a pedestal. My preaching is a pedestal. This building is a pedestal. And our goal is not that folks would walk away and say, wow, what beautiful music. Wow, what great preaching. Wow, what a beautiful building. But rather that they would walk away and say, what a beautiful Christ. That we sang about. What a beautiful Christ that was preached about in that building. How we feed the hungry and clothe the naked is a pedestal. How we live in front of our neighbors is a pedestal. How we gather in our home for base groups is a pedestal. Your job is a pedestal. Your home is a pedestal. Your family is a pedestal. And your goal should not be that people walk away saying, Wow, what an impressive ministry to the poor that they have. Or, wow, what a good and moral family that is at the end of that street. But rather we want them to walk away thinking, wow, what a great, great Christ they must serve that compels them to serve others. And, wow, look at what a difference their faith in Christ means to that family. Church, let us be mindful that our lives and our church point to Christ So that folks may be amazed by Jesus and not by us. May our lives and our ministry never produce Simons who are amazed at us. But rather would produce Samaritans who are amazed at Jesus. That our lives point to. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this precious passage of Scripture. And we do ask, Father, that you would help us as we seek to apply it to our lives. God, make us willing to endure suffering and sacrifice, whatever you may require of us, in order to get the gospel beyond our Jerusalem to the Samaria out there. Make us willing and even the small ways, and perhaps in the big ways. Help us, Father, to embrace that this gospel is for all. May we live like that. May we lead our church to truly believe that that is true. Father, may we see that our lives in our church are simply pedestals on which we place your son, Jesus. May our lives point people to him, not us. Do this, Father, not so that people would look at us and say, wow, what good Christians, but so that people would look at us, sinners transformed by the grace of God from rebels into saints, and say, wow, what a great Christ they serve. Do this for your glory, Father, we ask and pray in Jesus' name, amen.